0: In this episode, I talk about navigating race relations throughout high school and a little bit of middle school, especially with me being the daughter of two immigrants who never really understood what race relations in America were like, especially as a black woman. So I talk about my consciousness and the coming of age, essentially, to knowing who I am and being nobody but myself in all spaces. I hope you guys enjoy episode two of Passing Through High School. My dad didn't have any white friends growing up in Isekinesi, Nigeria. My mom didn't have any black friends growing up in Kampuncham, Cambodia. They were both born and raised in fairly homogenous societies, and didn't encounter issues with race or racism until coming to America. Sure, there was tribalism, socialism, and classism in both of their home countries, but assessing someone's character solely based on pigmentation was a new phenomenon. Along their journeys of U.S. citizenship, marriage, and raising children, they couldn't avoid the inevitable American stain of stereotypes. When they migrated to the Burbs, they figured that sticking their kids in primarily white schools would lead to good English, better grades, and the best set of friends foreign parents could ask for. Of course, this was before they heard one of my Caucasian friends tell their mom to shut up, using their first name. But let's fast forward to high school. Actually, let's rewind to my beloved Catholic middle school where... My eighth grade class had probably the largest cluster of children of color. A whopping eight kids. When you're young, microaggressions don't really make sense. You kind of feel like this person probably shouldn't be saying that, but then you realize you have more pressing issues to tackle. Like how you're going to trade your unripe grapefruit for Justin's nerd rope. And there are plenty of microaggressions and whole ass macroaggressions that come to mind when reflecting on my middle school experience but I distinctly remember a questionable comment made by my seventh-grade music teacher during after-school auditions. I sat down in a little blue rickety metal chair next to a couple of familiar faces. My eyes combed through a stack of paper littered with character descriptions. The play was a mob boss drama set in the 1930s. Think triple PG boardwalk empire. One character's story finally caught my eye, Queenie. She sounded pretty cool. She was head of her own mob boss family and said a couple cuss words in the opening scene. I was sold. A week later, the group that made the final cut gathered again for our first rehearsal. Me, as Queenie, barked a vicious command at a boy playing one of my minions. Mrs. O made me repeat the line about three times, urging me to add more emphasis, before she let out a deep sigh and gently pulled me aside. Naka, honey, when I say emphasis, I mean more more urban. Sensing my confusion, she proceeded to kneel down, scooting just close enough to rest her hand on my shoulder to collect her balance. Queenie has attitude. I want that urban sass and attitude from you, okay? Urban sass? Attitude? What the hell was urban sass? Thought middle school me. My mom never mentioned urban sass the previous night when I was rehearsing lines at the dinner table while licking fish sauce off chopsticks tangled in fried noodles. My middle school music teacher was asking me to be blacker. There was no color attached to the character I chose, but my black didn't fit her myopic, narrow view of an entire race of people, which had me questioning why she cast me in the first place. During middle school, my only real encounters with a diverse American group of kids my age was the bus ride home. The first stop being a public middle school to scoop up more students. A pit stop that quickly became the longest five minutes of my day. Public school kids, admittedly, scared the shit out of me. Mind you, I'm in my Catholic school multicolored plaid uniform, sitting exactly one seat behind the bus driver, and these kids, the majority black and brown, ran forcefully onto the bus, even the high yellow hunk of tin left and right, flinging their backpacks and bodies into those ugly, bark-brown leather seats. I mean, this was more melanin than I'd seen at U13 soccer practice and first and six hour combined. They laughed obnoxiously loud, talked shit, remixed cuss words I'd never heard in my life. They were free to be themselves. Unapologetically confident, undeniably cool. Yeah, my Catholic middle school self was like, a uh, act invisible, and they won't think you're lame. I was used to super white kids in super white spaces. Now let's fast forward to high school. Most of the kids at my Catholic middle school enrolled in a nearby Catholic high school. My parents were like, nah, we're not paying for that. You're going to public school. So there I was, at 14, conscious of my culture, but still miseducated on race relations in America, voyaging into what seemed like a macrocosm of my middle school bus, with no fucking friends. Naturally, I gravitated to what felt familiar. I made my first solid set of friends when soccer season started, the kind that gave me rides home when my parents forgot to pick me up. I was one of four freshmen on varsity, and the soccer girls seemed like a pretty tight-knit group. There were sincere moments when I thought I found a safe place. I fit in. Well, I thought I fit in. There were constant comments about my hair, which was relaxed at the time. Girls would grab four fingers and gasp and <laughs> chuckle in amusement that it managed to stay wherever you put it. I let it slide. Our home jerseys were this hideous corn yellow. It became funny to say I looked like a burnt banana in my jersey. I brushed it off, laughed it off. They're my friends, right? I mean, I got invited to their houses. We broke bread. We were on the same travel teams. We hung out between classes. They had to be my friends. I never addressed my discomfort. At the time, I didn't realize what you allow, you teach. On a rainy afternoon in May, I hitched a ride home with a teammate, someone I'd grown to trust in the last year. I considered her a close friend. We were stopped at a light, just a street away from my neighborhood. As red faded to green, three teens scurried across the street, giggling, drenched, joyful, I watched them in quiet amusement. My teammate impulsively shouted, "Ha! Look at those niggers run!" I paused. What? I asked. She froze and started to stammer. Uh, um, uh, sorry. That's just that's just something Kate and I say by ourselves. It's not. It's not you. Silence. A deafening silence an unforeseeable paradigm shift in the role of race within my white friendships. Allowing certain comments to slide, letting that lump of if I say something it might make them uncomfortable swell in your throat rather than shamelessly stating your truth is what leads to your friends forgetting you're black. It leads to a friend pulling you close in order to warn you that her other friend says the N-word when singing to rap songs. It leads to another friend slipping up and saying it's not like I'm a black girl or something when accused of stealing. And it leads to yet another friend calling a joyful group of young teenagers crossing the street niggers on a routine ride home. I was that black friend that my friends didn't see as black. I was acceptable black, colorblind black, not like those other black girls black, OJ black. Okay, not, not OJ black, but you get what I'm saying and getting my white friends comfortable enough engaging in that equal exchange of vulnerability that typically leads to lasting friendships led me to several bright spots of genuine connection. But it also, more often than not, exposed dark corners of cowardice racism passed on from peers and parents. Being the exception to someone's rigid stereotype of blackness isn't a badge of honor. It's a backward ass, open palm slap in the face. Inversely, in high school, I was also being viewed by another lens. I was, to some in the black community, a chocolate-coated, Crisco-filled, double-stuffed Oreo. Black on the outside, all types of white on the inside. I'll never forget one afternoon in biology class, I overheard a conversation between two guys sitting about a row in front of me. I was able to catch little sound bites here and there. They were having a debate about how as black guys they think that black girls get offended when they date outside their race... Etc., etc., insert 15 year old boy logic. And looking to settle the debate by ushering in a third party opinion, Dave tapped Ron and looked back towards me. Just ask her, she's a black girl, Dave suggested. Ron glanced at me, let out a short, sarcastic laugh, and mumbled to Dave, Man, her? She ain't black? They both chuckled and continued their debate without delay. My palms started to sweat. A surge of heat scattered across my face and ears. I was angry, annoyed, and embarrassed at the same time. I felt so out of place and insecure. Honestly, high school me permitted levels of disrespect that make adult me cringe. My previous haziness around racial identity seems like a distant memory. My own efforts of self-education and being fortunate enough to meet such a diverse array of people travel to lands both foreign and familiar, document stories and engage in genuine, truthful conversation, has helped crystallize my place in the world. My father is Nigerian. My mother is Cambodian. My mother wasn't thinking about race relations in America while trekking a three-month journey to Thailand, barely escaping a genocide. My father wasn't peering through W.E.B. Du Bois's veil of double consciousness while fighting across enemy lines in the Biafran War. In the U.S., when their paths collided and I was created, I inherited a third consciousness, a consciousness they'd never known. I'm an Igbo girl who can farm cassava in the village. I'm a Khmer translator for my cousins in Cambodia. I'm a black woman firmly rooted in her truth, unapologetically confident, undeniably cool. Navigating race, culture, ethnicity, identity, finding your place, being nobody but yourself, as E.E. Cummings so beautifully states, in a world that is trying night and day to make you everyone else, is the hardest battle any human being can fight. And never stop fighting. Passing through certain relationships when I was younger showed me that the right relationships, especially friendships, don't walk on the feeble tightrope of tolerance and niceties real friendships stand firmly on the shoulders of truth. And ignorance, unchecked or unaddressed, grows, solidifies, and becomes harder to hide the older we get. If we don't force ourselves to engage in that everyday battle to be nobody but ourselves, we end up being caught in a terrible rendition of Groundhog's Day, a death loop of similar microaggressions and racist comments wrapped in corny jokes, repeated by older versions of the same people. And without the convenient excuse of youth and inexperience, the blame falls squarely on you. Last week, I went with a friend to meet a couple of his old coworkers for a happy hour. A blonde, bubbly woman from Petoskey took a seat next to me. We exchanged greetings, politely inquiring about each other's backgrounds. Three glasses of wine later, we were suddenly on the topic of race. Bonnie took a sip of a drink and inhaled. At the time, I didn't know how ignorant I was, she admitted. I scooted closer, curious, all ears, comfortable in who I was, having an uncomfortable conversation, as nobody but myself. Thank you so much for listening to episode two of Passing Through. I really appreciate you guys taking the time out of your day to listen to this. Please make sure to like, comment, and subscribe. It'll really help the podcast. I appreciate you guys so much.